very pleased to be joined on this episode of the Morning Podcast by Jason Smart, who is in Kiev, Ukraine. Jason, welcome. Thank you, Steve. Good to see you. Why don't we start out by you telling the audience how long you've been in Ukraine, what it is that you're doing there. So I've been in Ukraine uh, since about 2015, pretty steadily since then. And I'm currently a journalist for the Kiev Post, the largest English language newspaper in the country. that's uh, been in existence since 1995. Talk to us about life in Kiev this Christmas season heading into winter. So it, recently it's been sort of complicated. Uh, there's been a series of missile strikes. Uh, yesterday, I think there's five air raid warnings. Uh, and Ukraine has been fortunate, thanks to specifically American Patriot missiles, has been able to shoot down a lot of the missiles that are coming into the territory. Uh, last Christmas was far worse. Uh, without the air defense, Ukraine was getting hit regularly. Uh, there was losing electricity. And it was so bad that walking down the streets of Kiev, uh, you couldn't hold a conversation with somebody by your side because there was so much noise from the generators. There was just so many generators everywhere. You just couldn't have a conversation. Uh, so we're past that point. At this point, they are able to shoot a lot of them down, yet the Iranian-made drones are still almost daily hitting Ukraine. Uh, they try to figure out where the air defense is located, and then they try to explode in various uh, infrastructure targets that they have. And that's in addition to the fact that there's uh, the ballistic missiles, uh, those that are produced by Russia, as well as it seems that now uh, missiles that are produced by North Korea and Iran are also going to be used. What is the morale of the Ukrainian people in this moment? Is it defiant, exhausted, resolved? How do they assess the counteroffensive, its status? And how do they assess the politics of the country right now heading into 2024? So I would say that the morale overall in the population remains very resolved. Uh, there's certainly a desire to defeat Russia. That's not changed at all. Uh, I, I can't even imagine how people would respond if you were to ask them, do you think it's time to cut a deal with Putin? Uh, nobody would accept that argument. Uh, that being said, obviously, they recognize there's been setbacks with things like the counteroffensive. Uh, those setbacks, though, are not something that we can blame just in one place, let's be fair. For a four kilometer by four kilometer, which is, you know, two and a half mile by two and a half mile large area, they uncovered about 20,000 landmines on the Russian side. Uh, that many landmines obviously slows things down, especially when there's not sufficient amount of uh, demining equipment. But more to that point, I think that on the Ukrainian side, there remains a very strong uh, desire to see victory. Uh, the president of the country, Zelensky, has an approval rating that's above 80%. Uh, it's probably about 88%, if I recall correctly. Um, and this is all indicative of the fact that the population is very united. I mean, they recognize this is genocidal. Vladimir Putin has been very clear, and he was clear yesterday when he had his uh, annual address to the press, that his intention has not changed. He wishes to conquer Ukraine. Uh, he also signaled very clearly that after Ukraine, there's other things in the works, such as the country of Moldova, and including the, the Baltic states, which are all NATO members. Vladimir Putin is unrepentant. He has completely uh, decided that this is what he wishes to 
be the, the hill that he, he dies on if it needs to be. Uh, and Russia's lost over 300,000 troops, casualties, I should say, not necessarily died. But those who have died, it's well over 170,000 at this point. Uh, Russia is just bleeding out men, and he will not stop. What is the casualty count for the Ukrainian armed forces at this point? So the numbers aren't public. Ukraine doesn't publish them. But it is estimated to be uh, less than half of what the Russians are. And it's surprising. At first, that seems not feasible. It seems, you know, it's just sort of like propaganda. Uh, but the fact is, it makes sense. Russia doesn't respect the lives of its soldiers. It does demine fields using its soldiers to run across them. Uh, these are generally, to be fair, uh, not something to do with all soldiers, specifically the ones that are, for instance, prisoners who they forced to go to the war, or ethnic minorities, they use them for the same purposes. Uh, those that have AIDS or other diseases that are communicable, they use for purposes such as this. So that is something that Russia has used as sort of a staple of the war, which is that they're cannon fodder. They're happy to send them off in droves, and uh, very few might return. Are there public estimates or government estimates of how many Ukrainian women and Ukrainian children have been raped by Russian soldiers or Russian mercenaries or Russian paramilitaries? Uh, yeah, the, there's at the prosecutor's office, a lot of cases open, about 90,000 cases of uh, rape and sexual assault. Uh, the majority of which were against small children, as well as against elderly women. Uh, and in the case, uh, sickly enough, is the same for both. Uh, the Russian soldiers who have been captured and who have been interrogated have said that it's because they don't run away as fast, so it's easier to get them. So the the rape of children has become so significant that the psychologists here are overwhelmed by it. Um, some of the interviews, which you can find online, they're not hard to find, what the psychologists have said about you know, they've they've just for no specific reason castrated little boys, uh, raped girls to death, uh, raped little girls or little boys uh, to death in front of their parents, then raped the mother to death. Um, this is something that Russia has engaged in in Ukraine. Is there an official count, precise count of how many children have been kidnapped? by those Russian forces who have raped upwards of 90,000 people and taken them east? How so, many children are missing? So tragically, uh, we know of about only 20,000, though it's estimated to be in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, like in the case of the rape of children, we only know about it when they have made it to the free Ukraine. That is to say that their parents uh, are in the unoccupied territories. Those who remain in occupied territories, there's no way of knowing what's occurred. So the number of rapes, for instance, or murders is undoubtedly much higher. The numbers of people that have been kidnapped is much higher. Simply the parents are not in free Ukraine. They are occupied Ukraine. And so there's no way for the Ukrainian prosecutor's office to know that this has occurred. But it is estimated that the reality is that there is about 20,000 that's publicly known of children who have been abducted from their parents, many of them who then have their names changed when they move to Russia, uh, that <clears throat> the reality is that the numbers are gonna be multiple times higher than that. How is 
the building MAGA Republican opposition to arming Ukraine being covered in Ukraine. How has President Zelensky's visit to the United States been covered domestically in Ukraine? Is it through a prism of worry that American support with regard to funding for the lethal weaponry necessary to repel the Russian military will be cut off? Sadly, to be frank with you, yes, uh, there is quite a fear about that. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, lack of understanding of why this is. Uh, the Ukrainians can understand why, you know, we just a year ago said they were allies and we'd stick it out with them. And today the United States has decided that it's it's got other priorities. Uh, keep in mind, this is a country where there are abductions going on today. There are people uh, of both sexes, of all ages, being raped to death today. There are people that are in pits being tortured in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and the, the atrocity is just un things that you've never had imagined in your life. And they do not understand why it is that there's a growing group of Americans who just do not have any sympathy for their plight, uh, who, who write off the things that are nonsense, such as, you know, the corruption. Listen, there's tons of oversight of the money going to Ukraine, just absolutely tons. I think it was 12 or 13 uh, different government agencies that are looking into an oversight of the money. There's not been any problems so far. And they don't understand why it is that Americans uh, are going to hang them out to dry to a bunch of bloodthirsty savages that have nothing else in their minds than to commit genocide. And that's what we see occurring today. Well, they have to have some idea. What do they think it is? They really don't. They're very scared by it because keep in mind, the Ukraine perspective on this is they read in the news that the U.S. is tying support for their country to immigration. They have no idea what U.S. immigration is like, why that's a big deal. They have no idea how you tie bills together in the U.S. Uh, these are all things that are very uh, foreign to them. Uh, so it is not something that makes a lot of sense. They just understand that for some, uh, closing this border uh, or whatever it is the Americans wish to do is something that's more important than what's happening to their population. They, they truly don't have a strong understanding. Uh, there's obviously, yes, a great deal of apprehension about the return of Donald Trump. Uh, there's a great deal of fear of what that might mean. Uh, just today, I was with the journalist who asked, you know, Trump has promised to end the war in 24 hours. Do you think that means he'll just give the whole territory over to Russia? What do you think that is? So, I mean, yes, there is significant concern in the population. When you look at it from Kiev, who are the Americans that are viewed by the Ukrainians as being Putin's most astonishing, useful idiots? Who are the Americans that they see and revile as being on the other side of this fight, being on the Russian side? Well, undoubtedly, Tucker Carlson has a special place in their hearts. Uh, Tucker Carlson is so widely cited in Russian news. Uh, it's nightly, literally every single night. For that matter, there's a YouTube channel. I'm sure you can find YouTube if you just type Tucker Carlson Russian. And you see his television shows are being translated to Russian. Who's paying for that? Where is it coming from? 
But whatever it is, the Russian government or whoever is behind it is so pleased by it that it is translating tons of episodes, especially the key parts, and using them. And the fact that it's showing up routinely is amazing. Alex Jones is another great example. He's been on Russian TV. He's cited as a person fighting for freedom in America who is being oppressed. Uh, the Russian press just loves him. Uh, and so we look at these guys. You know, if Russian press is highlighting you as an example of what's good about America, you're probably actually the worst part of America. And that's uh, what Russia has tried to really put an effort to expose their population to more of. What Republican members of the Senate and or Congress are you routinely seeing on Russian state TV, Russian propaganda channels and outlets? So the, the different congressmen and senators, it varies. Anytime they say something to oppose Ukraine or any time that they come up and, and use uh, Ukrainian, sorry, Russian talking points, uh, it is cited. I mean, Russia is constantly on the hunt for who it is they can cite as an example. Who is it we can say is an example that there is really a, a lot of support in America for what we're doing? What we're doing is not, you know, grossly unethical, uh, but in fact, Americans support it. Uh, and and I think that when we look at it as a whole, um, I would say that there's a few who are really their favorites. Uh, the, the Congresswoman from Georgia, Marjorie uh, Taylor Greene, is obviously at the very top of the list, is routinely cited. By the way, she also cites Russian government sanctioned by the U.S. government sanctioned news sources. And they're sanctioned for having tried to uh, uh, mess in the U.S. elections. Uh, but they are literally government propaganda. It's nonsense. They're completely nonsense things. Zelensky buying mansions in France and literally baseless, literally baseless. And you could say the same thing about me when it had the same degree of truth. It's just baseless. And that's cited by people like this. I mean, I will say, yes, the MAGA Republicans in polling are the least supportive of Ukraine out of any demographic in America. Uh, they believe essentially conspiracy theories about Ukraine. Uh, they believe things that are nonsensical. Uh, and they also have a very nonsensical view of Russia as a country that's defending Christian values or somehow defending traditional family values, which is just simply not true. Russia does none of the above. Uh, Russia is a criminal state run by Vladimir Putin, who's the mafia Don. And uh, anyone who thinks otherwise should really just take a look at what is Russia. Uh, that is a terrifying country with a population that's quite brainwashed. And there is sadly, yes, U.S. congressmen or senators who somehow think that it's a light to the East and nothing could be further from truth. Do you get the sense sitting in Ukraine that the war is yet to escalate to its full potential? The war will worsen. I mean, undoubtedly will. Listen, the Russians have located here in Ukraine an estimated 600,000 troops. That's at least what Putin said yesterday. Uh, the estimate prior to yesterday had been about 450,000. So let's let's say it's you know 500 something at least. Uh, the Ukrainian military is quite large, uh, but it's still only slightly larger than the Russian military. Uh, the advantage Ukraine has though is it suffers far less losses, uh, and thanks to specifically the American technology that is here, uh, the military hardware. Uh, it is able to defend itself and 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 to suffer less losses than the Russians do, and to evacuate its soldiers more efficiently than the Russians do, and so so their survival rates much higher. 
that being said, you know, Russia has no intent of stopping what it's doing now. And so we can expect that Vladimir Putin, uh, as he becomes more frustrated by this war, will engage in other human rights atrocities and the bombing of cities, as he currently does, uh, and, and to just continue this. But I think there's another element, which is that there is a lot of evidence that Russia is trying to stir up tensions in other countries, including in the Balkans, including Moldova, uh, in order specifically uh, to, to distract from what's going on here so that he'll have more of a free hand and less attention will be placed on him. When you assess the situation, to what degree do you think that Vladimir Putin is calculating that Donald Trump will be elected president in November 24, take office in January 25, A, precipitate a constitutional crisis domestically, and B, uh, attempt to uh, or resolve to withdraw America from its NATO obligations, uh, which are uh, harder to do than the MAGA spokespeople uh, allow, but nevertheless um, could certainly signal that countries that America is obligated to defend under Article 5 including the Baltic republics, would not be defended uh, and leaving them naked outside of America's deterrence perimeter. Um, what what degree to which do, do you look at the situation and see that, that, that Putin is just holding on, waiting for that to happen? Uh, you know, I would generally agree with that assessment. So I think that Donald Trump is something that is the hope for Vladimir Putin. Uh, and, and as time goes on, you know, I, I don't think that's a partisan talking point. I think that is accurate uh, because I, I, I see enough of what's happening in Russia that affirms that. Listen, I, I read the Russian news every day. Obviously, I speak Russian. Um, and I'm telling you, when you read the Russian news and you read what their, their, their television channels, the Kremlin finance cha television channels, when they say things such as our friends, the Republicans, are doing this right now, or we're closer to victory and Donald Trump will join us for it, how should you interpret that? I mean, to me, it is a very scary thought that there is not just, I mean, I understand all countries will have a preference in an election. Uh, that's normal. But the fact that they consider it to be their ally being elected, who will help them to, to conquer Ukraine, I, I find it to be just, uh, just sickening. I mean, it is truly... I don't remember this ever once in Russian history in its relation to the United States, where the Russians have been so unambivalent about the fact that one of the two candidates is someone who is going to help them to win. Uh, and then the fact that they are citing people who the same guy, Donald Trump cites, such as Tucker Carlson, uh, the people who are the most loudmouth in the MAGA movement are exactly the people who show up on Russian TV. Uh, to me, this is just incredible. And we're not talking, you know, a one-time thing where somebody has a quote that's taken out of context and the Russians use it. We're talking steadily and routinely. The Russians say, well, look, there are good people in America, and this is what they believe. This is what they say. But Donald Trump, on a personal level, yes, I mean, his lack of predictability, how scary he is for the NATO countries. Uh, just listen to what the foreign minister of Lithuania, uh, Gabriel Lensburgas, has been saying. They're tremendously worried. They know that Donald Trump 
uh, is dangerous for them. They, they never use his name. These are politically, you know, they're trying to be neutral. They are a foreign ministry. But it's very clear what they're saying. They're saying that the Russians are going to try to conquer Ukraine and then go for the Baltic states, but they definitely have an eye on what happens next in Washington. And we all understand exactly what they're referring to. They're referring to the, the Donald Trump coming back, a guy who's promised uh, not to make America great again, but to have revenge. What does that mean? And the fact that they have all the investigations going on uh, now in the U.S. House about Hunter Biden, which is touching on Burisma and Ukraine, I have no doubt whatsoever. And by the way, we know this is ties back to Russian intelligence, the whole story. There are people that were in collusion with Russian intelligence who met with people like Giuliani uh, in regards to that, you know, years ago now. But those those things are all being done uh, specifically to benefit Donald Trump and his campaign. You used three times a word in describing Putin's objectives during this conversation, and the word is conquer, as in conquer Ukraine. And I want to drill down on that. Do you mean to say that it is Vladimir Putin's aim to occupy Ukraine fully and completely, the full nation of in the mid 40s of millions of people that in the way that Germany did France and did Greece and did the Netherlands as an occupying power, as a controlling power, making illegal the Ukrainian language. What do you mean by that? Yeah, actually, the example of Germany that you gave is pretty much what I mean by that. So we can only look at the occupied territories so far, uh, some of the eastern parts of Ukraine. And what we saw there, and we'll just say that's probably a good uh, example, a prologue of what is to come. Uh, history is but a prologue. Uh, and in this case, we see that in those regions, uh, there is forced taking of citizenship, of Russian citizenship, that is. Uh, those who have refused, have, you know, many things have happened, you know, just yesterday, they were raiding their houses, uh, stealing their possessions, stealing the cash they might have had or anything that had value, and then throwing them out uh, into the streets. There's also the fact they've, you know, kidnapped their children, so they can send them to Russia to be Russified, to only speak Russian, uh, and also to become more Russian-like and to forget their Ukrainian identity. They've eradicated or stomped out the Ukrainian language and culture. Uh, they've closed down the Ukrainian churches. For that matter, I mean, they've closed down uh, Protestant churches, Baptist churches, evangelical churches, because it's considered to be a pro-American conspiracy in the eyes of the Russians. Uh, I've interviewed uh, pastors from eastern Ukraine who lived under occupation or who were captured by Russians who were tor tortured. I mean, they, they hooked their generals up to electric prods and lit them up, uh, these pastors, because they said that, you know, all evangelicals, all Protestants are part of the American conspiracy. This is something that the Russians really believe. This is not just, you know, crazy. This is not so far outside the realm. I've met enough people who have suffered these sorts of fates to say that it's it's what happens. So when I talk about what's going to happen to the rest of Ukraine, yes, I'd imagine it'd be very analogous to that. Uh, Russia has historically also taken the male population from these regions and forces them to become uh, soldiers for the military. Once again, they use them primarily as cannon fodder. There is no intent that they're going to win the war, or I should say, come back victoriously. They send the soldiers to die. There's an understanding they're going there to be wiped away. They, they've uh, taken 300,000 casualties 
does does Russia have the wherewithal militarily to occupy the whole of Ukraine if Western military support collapses? Uh, yes. I mean, if that's the whole thing is that Ukraine is able to keep it together because of the Western military assistance. Uh, should that not come through, look at the numbers. Russia's got 140 million people. It's a massive country. And the fact is, if they just keep rounding up people and send them off as they are, uh, they will eventually overwhelm Ukraine, unfortunately. Uh, that being said, uh, Ukraine's singular advantage has been the Western military technology that allows it to suffer far less casualties than the Russian side. Uh, and it's it's thanks to the Americans. I mean, have no doubt about it. It is thanks to the American people. And Ukrainians are very thankful. I want to be clear. is They're very thankful. Uh, and they do bring it up. I mean, when they hear my accent, it's one of the first things they say. They love America. They appreciate what the Americans have done for them. Uh, and they are they are you know trite worried uh, about what's going on now in the domestic American political. Let's see if we agree on something, which I suspect we do. But this is just as a basic strategic proposition, right? If you're a United States senator, cold bloodedly looking at this situation. Let's say that your true equities of the matter are defending Poland, and you're really indifferent to Ukraine. Is it not the case that so long as this war is fought in Ukraine, that the Russians do not have the wherewithal to expand it beyond Ukraine to, say, Moldova or the Baltics? Or do you believe they can continue to fight in Ukraine while expanding the war simultaneously to those other places? Or do you believe an expansion is the consequence of defeat in Ukraine. So the Russians at this point absolutely cannot take a significantly attack Poland or the Baltic states. Uh, they're far too occupied here in Ukraine. Uh, that being said, you know, if, if Ukraine were to fall, yeah, in the closing days of that, they could easily roll through Moldova, for instance. That would not take much effort. Um, there's only 7,000 soldiers in Moldova. It would be pretty quick. Uh, 2.5 million people in the country. Uh, but at this stage, no, far away, Russia just does not have the capacity to do so. Uh, and, and once again, you know, I think part of the whole strategy, if I was a U.S. senator, is the fact that, hey, listen, it is far better to keep the Russians occupied in Ukraine, losing troops like crazy, losing tanks like crazy. Russia has lost, I want to say statistic correctly, I want to say 68% of its tanks have been destroyed in this war. Uh, the attrition rate, the number of soldiers who die in the war get wiped out, it's about 86%. There's plenty of evidence that Russia does not have the ability to stand up to modern American technologies. And it's really that simple. And of course, the bravery of the Ukrainian soldiers and all else, but it's the technology that's blowing up the tanks. Uh, and so we have to be clear is that we are obliterating more than 50% of the Russian military, and it has cost us 5% in the U.S. defense budget. But this comparison... That works out to less than about, uh, let's see, 
five tenths, or let's say half of 1% of the US national budget, half of 1% of the total US budget has been able to destroy more than 50% of the Russian military. And I think that if we look at the many generations of Americans who paid federal taxes to pay for a military uh, that would specifically defend them from the Soviet Union, from the Russians, today we're destroying the Russian military in a way that they could never have dreamt of, costing not one US soldier's life. This is a very low cost. And one thing that they leave out in American talk about this discussion is that the vast majority of the money, and this is easily found in the government's websites, the vast majority of the money that we give to Ukraine is actually staying in the United States. Keep in mind, these are U.S. produced things. Abrams tanks are produced in Ohio. Uh, you know, these other things, Louisiana produces 155. There is different things where you look at the U.S. states, what they're producing, the jobs that are created, and how much of the weaponry that Ukraine is given, as well as the, the, the various uh, 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 artillery and stuff like this, that were nearing their date of expiration. They have to be used up by a certain date. These are things that we've had in stockpiles, a lot of it, from the 80s, you know, from the early 90s. They're not going to sit there for 100 years. I mean, if we don't use it in a certain time period, they destroy it. And that costs more money. It's, it costs very little to send it to Ukraine for free. So the numbers of how much we're spending in Ukraine, I would argue, are actually quite inflated. It's a lot less. And it's saving the U.S. taxpayer a lot of dollars in many ways. The U.S. military in return gets the newer technology, the newer equipment, and we're offloading the older stuff or the more used stuff to Ukrainians. So this is a win-win for everybody, and we're getting rid of one of our greatest geopolitical foes in our entire history. Well, you know, it's funny listening to you say that. I, I, I mean, I do have a bit of a different opinion on the messaging piece, though I understand the meritoriousness, right, of the argument you're making. But in the end, it costs what it costs, because the cost of Ukraine falling to the Russian Federation under Vladimir Putin uh, is ultimately paid for uh, by America's young men and women uh, somewhere down the line in a widening European war. And so you have a confluence of leaders in Trump, in Le Pen, uh, far-right party rising in Germany uh, that are all that you need to unravel the EU, to unravel NATO. And history would suggest that there's terrible consequences to that, particularly, particularly in Europe. So, um, you know, this is an urgent moment, I think, for America's national security in one where um, you know, the arming of Ukraine is is an essential matter. And the and the politics of it in the states are clear is that you know, President Biden is going to have to capitulate on the on the border funding issue. And these issues should never have been linked. The one should not be used to ransom the other. Uh, particularly by the extremists that are doing the ransoming, but uh, they have succeeded in doing it. And I think that uh, the Biden administration will be compelled to cut that deal. Uh, but the fundamental issue for Ukraine in the United States is that in the course of a year, uh, President Zelensky has gone from a 
universally admired man to a man who is a presence draws a lot of indifference uh the attention span of the united states is that of a uh, uh, gerbil and in the end uh there has to be a consistency of communication about the urgency of what's at stake because this is going to go on for a long long time and the american commitment has to be absolute until the end and that the war cannot stop must not stop uh, until there are no longer any russians on ukrainian soil left to be killed and that's how the war can stop and that's the position of the Ukrainian government. That's the position of the Ukrainian people. And the American position must be to arm and support them uh, for as long as is as necessary. And it's incumbent upon America's political leaders to communicate that, I think, with absolute with absolute clarity. It may it may cost more in real dollars next year and more than that whatever the number is it's a big number but it's one we can easily afford because we're a very rich country and we're a country that spends such an extraordinary amount of money on its armaments uh, that it's impossible uh, for the pentagon to pass an audit uh, so there's a lot of crocodile tears around this issue in the underlying infection is the america first infection uh, we have seen a reawakened affinity uh, for fascism and there's always been uh, part of the body politic part of the leadership that has embraced you know with some blindness the authoritarian impulse the shiny uniform the military parade the dogmatic religiosity that is thinly veiled authoritarianism and all of these all of these things you get to see play out with regard to ukraine and it's quite interesting to me the parallels between that affinity and affiliation towards vladimir putin um uh, as it compares to the affiliations towards adolf hitler and you know tucker carlson is very much a father coughlin type figure for the digital age um and the reality is that none of it is particularly surprising because of a version of it has already played out literally within a human lifetime, which is the astonishing part, with a whole society amnesia about what happens when a aggressive imperial country like Russia uh, tries to aggrandize itself through acts of war and acts of war crimes to enlarge its territory and to impose its will on people that it regards as less than. And that's what's happening in Ukraine. And the United States has to be at the center 
not just of the armaments end of it, but in terms of making the moral argument in defense of liberty and freedom. And that, that's so essential, I think. Well, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. And you know, it's, it is shocking to me to see that the United States, uh, so many people do not appreciate the parallels, which you just highlighted, uh, to the rise of Hitler. I mean, if you look at Putin, I, I think you'd be very hard pressed to find people who follow Putin carefully, who would not say there are very clear parallels to Germany in the, the 30s. Uh, the fact is that Vladimir Putin has already occupied other countries' territory. Uh, he has created a, a, it's not patriotism, I mean, it is fascism, truly. If you look at this ultranationalism within the population, the superiority of ethnic Russians, linguistic Russians, um, they don't use the word superior, but it's very clear what the, what, what's being implied, what they're trying to say by it. Uh, they, the fact they've deemed everything that's foreign to be some sort of an enemy of their country, uh, everything that's a foreign, uh, uh, let's say, belief uh, or religion or anything else is bad. It needs to be stopped. It needs to be stopped out. There is no free press in Russia. There hasn't been for a long time. There are not free trials in Russia or court processes. Uh, there is not, uh, by any means, a free society. I mean, a, a podcast such as this would absolutely be forbidden in Russia. I mean, your house will definitely get raided for something like that. And you will end up in the camps. I mean, listen, they have plenty of people in Russia sent to prison for years for doing something so small as holding up a sign that just says no war. It's all it says, no war, no to war. And you'll get years in prison. You get up to 15 years in prison for that. And people have stood outside of the Kremlin, and you can find the videos online, with a blank piece of paper, just hold up a blank piece of paper. Uh, it doesn't say anything. But to show you the absurdity of the police state is that they will arrest you and take you away. You will go to prison. Uh, this is not a joke. Russia is a fascist state. They are brainwashing their population. And this is, you know, we throw that word around a lot in other countries, including the U.S., but this is not, this is something unparalleled. We've never had something like this. I mean, the social media, such as Facebook and things there, are not used. They have their own, which is a direct copy-paste of what Facebook looks like. Vikontaki, Anaklasniki, they're called. They look exactly the same as Facebook or another social media. They have their own uh, chats like WhatsApp or Signal, they have their own, it's called Telegram, which they use. Uh, they can monitor what the users do. They can monitor what the users write. They can monitor which groups they join. And then when somebody, you know, they notice is engaging in behavior, which the state does not sanction, can come and raid their house. Uh, they do have, you know, all sorts of loyalty tests and verification of people. Uh, it, it is to a degree and, and, I, and I know this is a far branch to go out on, but I, I think it is a serious argument that it is worse today than it was in the Soviet Union. Uh, simply in the Soviet Union, I don't think they have the technological capacity to monitor the citizens as closely as they are now. Uh, they are able to monitor them on the most every level possible. Obviously, all their credit card data and everything else to make sure what they're purchasing, from whom they're purchasing, if it's foreign or if it's domestic. They really keep tabs on their people and they live in fear. And the people know that they can't joke about things, what's what's forbidden to talk about. Uh, it, it is a, a closed society, increasingly closed society, uh, and it is a direct threat to the United States. And actually, that, you know, I think that's one thing that anyone who's lost about that in America or thinks this about Ukraine is absolutely wrong. Listen, Ukraine is the first step. And this is this is the first stop on the metro. This is going to keep going. And the next stop is going to be other countries. It is definitely going to be, you know, the Moldovas or the Baltic states and then Poland's. Um, and that's why the Baltic states and Poland have been so openly in favor of Ukraine or continue to assist it and, and to push U.S. lawmakers as well to support it. 
is because they know it's their own self-security that comes with this. But let's look at the repercussions. We see Venezuela wants to take Guyana. Uh, that's not by coincidence. Venezuela is as close as it gets to Russia as possible. We see what's going on with China and Taiwan. That's also related to what Russia th Russia showed is there's perhaps going to be some permissibility if we do this, if, especially if Trump were to come to power. Uh, and so we're going to you know, start laying the cards up. We see that Russia's leading its allies around the world, Iran, for instance, in cooperation with Hezbollah and Hamas, which, by the way, Hamas was in meetings in Moscow in mid-October. Uh, they've openly worked with organizations like this for years. Russia is a direct threat to the United States security globally and our allies, not just ours, our allies. So if anyone is so misguided as believers, well, you know, who cares if they take Ukraine? You know, if you're willing to look past a genocide, that's not going to, you know, turn your stomach. Okay. But let me argue that eventually it will be American soldiers that will die for this. I have no doubt about this. U.S. citizens will die as a result of this decision. So right now it's pay a little bit of money, less than 5% of the defense budget, and we can keep this far from our shores, protect our allies and protect our sons from having to go fight in a war. Or we could say, no, we're going to fight over this for these crocodile tears about saving taxpayers money. And in fact, no, that's going to be your sons that die in this war. And it'll cost us hundreds of billions of dollars in the meantime. Well, save taxpayer money. We hire 5,000 auditors to go in there and kick ass, right? Like a SEAL team of auditors uh, to deal with what Dwight Eisenhower warned about. But, you know, look, uh, the... U.S. Navy isn't big enough. Um, the procurement uh, process is shattered. Uh, the waste is profound. But there's no choice but to arm Ukraine. And I think that this has to be an elevated cause in the United States and that there needs to be better communication about the matter as a, as a whole, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on and talk about it today so that, you know, people can get a better sense. But let me ask you this too. Talk about what it is like to live in Kiev now. Are you moving around the country um, how close are you to uh, the combat zones in 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 your coverage? If at if at all, are you primarily in the city? What is what is life like? Is there privation? Are there things you can't get on the stores? Is is life away from the front line fairly normal? Is the air raid or the missile attack now a routinized you know a routine part of the part of the day that you know people you know were just ignored to it what talk about what life is like so you know it depends on where in the country you are i mean it's quite a large country for european standards i'm usually in kiev the capital uh and in kiev there is routinely drone strikes drone attacks uh, the drones are Iranian-made, primarily. Uh, they typically come in. Uh, they're quite loud. They've historically been loud. They've got quieter ones, not too. Uh, but that's, you know, that sets off the air raid alarms. The air raid alarms also go off whenever a MiG, Russian-made airplane, Soviet-made airplane, takes off in Belarus uh, or in Russia that's near the border. 
because they use the MiGs to fire missiles. They, it, the, the, the ballistic missiles are fired from the MiGs into Ukrainian cities. So they target it from you know, air and they fire into uh, land targets here in Ukraine. Now, uh, obviously, I mean, thank God, in Kiev, it's much quieter than is, let's say, in the eastern part of the country. In the eastern part of the country, it is, I mean, it, it's horrendous. I mean, it, the, the firing, the shooting doesn't stop. Uh, it does go constantly. Uh, you can hear small arms, artillery, there's the drones hanging overhead constantly. Uh, it, it is it is World War One sort of conditions for the soldiers. Uh, it's winter now. It's I mean it's Ukraine, so it's cold. So they're in sub you know zero temperatures uh, outside in the snow as uh, as things are just exploding constantly, especially at night. The air raids tend to also in this Kiev as well as in the front. Uh, nighttime is when a lot of the big explosions happen uh, because you know it's harder to detect things such as drones or I guess missiles as well. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's 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 it adds confusion. It also adds terror. There's a whole population woken up every night. Well, not every night. I mean, it was quiet for a period, but yes, very frequently it'll go off a couple times a night. So if you're the local population and you're trying to sleep at nights and you're you know this air raid which is out in the streets goes off and goes off goes off. Of course, it's going to wake you up. It's become normalized to the sense that you know I talk to friends uh, in the morning after an air raid. And they talk about how their kids sleep in the bathroom, specifically, you know, the bathroom is not going to have windows on or anything else. So there's not going to be broken glass or shards coming through uh, if something explodes outside uh, or they sleep in the hallway. Uh, there's one friend of mine who works uh, in television news in Ukraine. Her, she's a single mother. Uh, the, the Just a, a Russian rock, uh, missile was headed towards Kiev. The air defense fortunately shot it down. The downside is when you shoot down air, when air defense shoots down a rocket, or missile, it's still going to fall somewhere. Uh, in that case, it fell in her house and exploded. She, her 10-year-old son was at home alone. Uh, she was at work. Uh, he heard the air raid alert and went to the basement by himself. Unfortunately, he survived. The house got completely destroyed. Her car got destroyed. She's She's got nothing left. I mean, she's literally, she, she's living in the framework of that house now, uh, which they've got a heater. They put on some, they've patched parts of the walls. But she was telling me it's about... Uh, 12 degrees centigrade, which I guess is probably in the low 40s, mid 40s uh, of temperature at, at, at during the during the day and night. And it's, so it's cold. And she's living there with her, her son. And she was asking me if I could help him. Uh, and it's that's not uncommon. I've known plenty of people have had that sort of a fate. In her case, you know, I, I look at it and say, it, it's incredible. What, what can be done for you? The fact is the government's broke. International insurance as well as domestic insurance uh, does not cover acts of war. As it does not cover acts of war, it means you're just out of luck. You know, if your car gets totaled by it or your house gets burned or blown up as hers did, you've just lost your life savings. There's there's no way you're ever going to recover it. Keep in mind, the average salary for a worker here, such as herself, I don't know exactly what she got paid, but I'll guesstimate it's about $700 a month. Uh, how will she ever be able to, to fix this damage? Uh, it's never. And she said it was estimated 20000 to fix her house back to what it was. It was an inheritance uh, from the Soviet period, from her grandparents. Could live there, uh, but how is she ever? If you make seven hundred dollars a month, get twenty thousand. She'll never get it. She'll never. Get it. And so the reality is that she's going to live in destitute poverty. Uh, you know, unless some miracle comes through, she gets a job outside the country. Uh, but this is this sort of thing happens to people. I mean, people day in and day out are struggling. Twenty six percent is the unofficial uh, unemployment. She's a, and she's a broadcast journalist. Uh, she was no. She works behind the camera. She does not work behind. She works. Behind the camera, not in front of the camera, but yes. 
So she was uh, uh, doing, you know, different things for programming, but by profession, she was working with disabled children and uh, as a psychologist for them, but there was, she tried to get a change of profession so she could be at home more with her son. And this is what happens. Um, so she's, you know, good person and that's what happens. Uh, then you have the the other situations here in the country. You know, there's 6.2 million Ukrainian women and children who've left the country since the war began, primarily in Europe. Uh, Poland's the biggest country they've moved to. We know that there's been a host of problems of them being abducted for sex trafficking uh, all over the world. I mean, to Turkey, to the Middle East, uh, all over the place. Uh, the, the, and then women, well, mostly the younger women, girls and, and children. Uh, we also have, you know, the people that are, lives are destroyed. I mean, they, they've got no future uh, once they've left Ukraine. Uh, they have no community. They don't know what to do. They haven't been outside the country before. So they're just sort of left to their own luck of the wind. Uh, but within the country, as I said, it's 26% unemployment rate. That's official. It's presumed to be much higher. Uh, it's uh, quite a bit of destitution. There is not everything that there used to be in the stores by any means. Uh, it's become much harder. Uh, including things like medical goods and stuff like that, uh, things that are more expensive because there's much less demand. Uh, you see a lot of storefronts that are closed. They used to be all open. It was very vibrant. I would say Kiev. I mean, Kiev was a lot of fun. Of all, all the cities I've been to in Europe, which is quite a number, uh, this was by far the most fun. Kiev was a great city, and it's just it's 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 dying. And it's simply dying uh, because you know there is. There is is there anyone in the restaurants? Are there restaurants open? Are there bars open? Are there, you know, as you pointed out, it was a vibrant, vibrant city, a place I've been to more than more than once. What is there is there any social activity that's carrying on any type of normalcy, you know, that you would expect in a great city? I mean, yeah, there are there are some restaurants open. Uh, a lot have gone out of business, but there are some open. Uh, there are some, uh, you know, cafes, open coffee shops. Once again, the quantity is much less than it was before. Uh, but it's 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 uh, no the nightlife. I mean, as far as that goes, no, it's non-existent. Uh, for that matter, it, you know, there's a curfew in the country due to the state of war, the martial law. Uh, so it's by midnight, people have to be home, which is is especially here in the capital and the eastern parts of the country, strictly obeyed. Um, because I have a journalistic uh, pass, an ID, military ID, I'm allowed to be out past those hours. So I have walked just out of curiosity to see if it's strictly obeyed. And I can assure you it's strictly obeyed. There are no cars out past midnight until 5 a.m. And that's for a very simple reason. I mean, it is one, in the early days of the war, there's a lot of saboteurs that were catching Russians and people assisting the Russians to give positions. Uh, but at this point, you know, a lot of the military reposition of technologies happens at night. So I think it's to try to keep taps on that and, and also try to control it. I mean, it's not, you know, I don't think most people would, but just a hypothetical, I don't think it's necessarily good for the morale that people are going to nightclubs in the midst of a war, which they're not because they're not open, they're closed. So that's not happening. People aren't going out and drinking all night. That's not happening. Uh, it is much more of a controlled situation. But people realize that the there's an existential battle that their country's engaged in. And when you talk to people, I, I assure you, just go up and you know ask them how they're doing. Ask them, do you know if there's anyone in the war, anyone personally who's in the war? 100% chance they will tell you about their friends and family in the war. Uh, more than likely than not at this point, they will mention who has died or been permanently injured uh, in the war. 
when you walk down the main street in Kiev, it's called Kreshev, one thing you'll notice is, and you know, I, I never paid attention to it. A Polish journalist was here last month and he, he noted this when we were walking down the street. And I guess I'm sort of like the frog that's in the boiling water. I didn't realize it because I'm here every day as it's getting worse, but I didn't notice it. Is you notice the number of amputees. The number of amputees is really staggering. And I just never appreciate it because it's just, you know, every day it's a little bit more. But at this point, yeah, you, you see quite a bit. Uh, double amputees or otherwise. You see people with facial burns. Uh, they're they're patched up. You see things with uh, just, you know, horrible things that have happened to people in the course of this war. And it's not just soldiers. There's plenty of civilians. And yet the morale of the country remains high. It and does. spirit is defiant. It remains defiant because, let's, let's be fair, they themselves believe what is true, uh, that if Putin were to take something like Kiev, he will send their children off to Russia. Uh, the younger girls will become the prostitutes of the Russian soldiers. Uh, they will be tortured. The men will be go the forced then to fight against Western Ukrainians as the Russians move further west. They will send those men off to become cannon fodder. Uh, everything of value here will be robbed or looted. Uh, they will destroy anything of cultural value because this is what Russia has done throughout Eastern Ukraine. Russia has routinely done this. This is a genocide. Remember, Vladimir Putin is up at the International Criminal Court, international arrest warrant for charges of trafficking in children. He's up on stealing children and deporting them to Russia. This is what the Russian military is engaged in. This is not just, you know, geopolitics, which is an important angle to discuss, but this is this is an actual genocide taking place. The UN commissions looked into this has come to the same conclusions. This is terrifying and it's happening today. And the fact that people think of this is in terms of, oh, that's a Biden issue or, you know, that's not good for Trump or whatever people, the confines or context that they add to it, uh, please ignore it. Just look at what's going on on the grounds. I think as Americans, we should defend freedom and values such as our own and those who support America, uh, such as the Ukrainians. We, we should be doing what we can to, to fight off this new wave of fascism. It's a perfect place to leave it. Jason Smart, thank you so much. Stay safe in Kyiv. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it.